Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation. I hope you have missed this book as much as I have. I have missed being in a book that, uh, for so many, is a book that brings questions, but I really believe as we patiently move through it, it'll bring us great encouragement, great encouragement as we see, in particular, Jesus Christ lifted up and magnified. Given the fact that we have not been in this book since the middle of March, we need to review just a little bit. I don't mean to go too long on this, but you see how long I have for review in the manuscript there. This is a book of prophecy, given the fact that the, the book itself calls itself a book of prophecy numerous times. And this prophecy is about Jesus Christ, and it is by Jesus Christ. He is the prophet, the primary prophet of this book. And it is in this book we learn of him, Jesus Christ, that he will accomplish the victory of God. And so far, we have gone through these first three chapters, and you have noticed his words. If you have a red letter edition of the Bible, you noticed so many of the words in these chapters were his exact words. And it's by these that he reveals the mind of God to the churches to the end that they would conquer as he conquered. That's why he did that. Now, when chapter 4 opens, we break into a new portion of the book that's altogether different. Chapters 2 and 3 were marked by assessments, Christ's assessments of the seven churches of Asia and his exhortations to those churches. And in those chapters, we found again and again ethical commands. Now this book of prophecy changes. It's a book of prophecy, but it's in the form of an epistle. So just as we have a change from Romans 11 to Romans 12, or just as we have a change from Ephesians 3 to Ephesians 4, we find a change as we go from Revelation 3 to Revelation 4. Because now what we enter is the portion of the book that we'd consider doctrine. Again, this book is a little bit flip-flopped in the way it typically is given in an epistle. Usually in an epistle, it's doctrine and then application. But as we've seen from the very form given to us, the application comes first, the doctrine comes second. However, when you typically hear about Revelation 4 and following, you don't usually hear the term doctrine you hear a term like prophecy. You hear about things of the future. And that is because doctrine is typically thought of to be those things that are from past events that have present significance. Doctrine is things like the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the only means by which we may have the forgiveness of all of our sins. That's doctrine, those past events. Yet doctrine is also future events that have present significance. That is, one day, Jesus is bringing heaven's rule to earth. And you see, just because the events are future, it doesn't mean that they're uncertain because they haven't happened yet, as if only the things in the past are certain because they have happened. Instead, what Jesus said will happen, it indeed is certain. So here's the point. Whether something is past or future... We have to trust it. 
And that's the nature of faith. We believe what God has said. You see, you and I weren't here to see Jesus die on the cross or to see the empty tomb. And you and I have not yet seen God's kingdom established overall and evil rooted out. Yet those things are true. God has confessed them and we must believe them by faith. They are indeed doctrine that we need to believe. I say all that because as we come to this portion of the book of Revelation, there are those who do not interpret these events as future because they basically say, what would telling the future do to help saints today? Why tell suffering saints today about things that will happen long after they're gone? So what they do is interpret these chapters as either past, which not a lot of people do that, but others will interpret these events as present events or typical events. That's probably the most popular. They'll interpret these following chapters as typical events of Christian experience. They're not future. They're now. But that mentality that something has to be present for it to be of value and significance today is wrong when we consider Scripture. Because Scripture again and again has prophets of God pointing far ahead. Just think for a moment. Enoch, he was the seventh from Adam, and he prophesied about the Lord's future judgment upon the ungodly, according to Jude 14 and 15. So you have people years ago prophesying about something that has not yet come. Yet that was meant for the benefit of his contemporaries. And as you go through almost every single one of the writing prophets of the Old Testament, we find related future events for the benefit of those who are contemporary to those prophets. Then as we look at people like Jesus and Peter and Paul, they all spoke about future things and made present-day applications. So when it comes to the Scriptures as a whole, there is nothing strange about talking about the future and making a point for today. So where does the doctrine of the future things begin in Revelation 4? What is the first thing that we're going to learn about the future? Revelation 4. Well, we get a clue about what it's going to be at the end of chapter 3. And I always appreciate when God gives a nice little summary of what he's about to say in a passage. We find that in verse 21. It says, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with, and here it is, my father on his throne. See, what do we find in chapter 4? We find the father on his throne. The father on his throne. So my dear brothers and sisters in the Lord, today let's consider the one who is seated on the throne. Let's pray. Father, as we consider your word today, we ask that you would exalt yourself in our eyes because that is exactly what Jesus did for John and by extension for us. Lord, we pray that you would be gracious to us to that end. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. According to the news, 
passions are running high in the streets following the death of George Floyd, a man who died as a result of the wrongful actions of police officers in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And protests have spread across the nation, and more lives and a lot of property has been lost along the way. And the cry in the streets is for change. And arguably, the first change that is called for is change in perspective. The call is for change in perspective towards those of color. And that call is rippling across the nation, in the news, on social media, and in everyday conversations that you and I are having. Yet, as we will see today, there is a reality that calls for a far more important change of perspective from everyone in this nation and everyone around the world. It's a reality we find in Revelation 4. It's a reality that concerns a throne and the one seated on the throne. Young people, a throne is a seat, but it's not just any seat. A throne is a seat where a sovereign sits. A throne is a place where a king sits. And a dozen times in this chapter of only 11 verses, the term throne occurs in reference to the throne that God the Father sits on. It is the focus of this chapter. The chapter is not about a seat or a chair. But what it does is focus our attention on the one who sits on the throne. It's God the Father. It's God the Father who rules over all. And as we move through this chapter, we're going to find two main points. The first one is what we must believe. There is something in this text that each one of us must believe. We must hear it and believe it. And secondly, there's something in this text that we must imitate. So first... This morning, my brothers and sisters in the Lord, first seven verses, we learn that God the Father is heaven's glorious sovereign. God the Father is heaven's glorious sovereign. He is seated on the throne, and we need to believe this reality because Jesus caused John to see the one who is seated on the throne. Look in your Bibles at Revelation 4.1. After this, after what? Well, the things of chapter 110 through the end of chapter 3. After this. I looked, John looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, what's that? Your cross-reference tells you, chapter 1, verse 10, that's Jesus' voice. Jesus is again speaking to John. What does he say? He says this, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the Spirit. So here is the upward call. And who could ever imagine entering heaven on his own, as is described here, that John would go up to heaven? You see, man has been able to make it into space and land on the moon, but man has never journeyed to heaven and back by his own means. But Jesus here has the authority and power to open the doors between heaven and earth and to grant John access where we don't have access. And he did this for a purpose of revealing to him something very specific. It's very specific because it has to do with the entire outline of this book. It says, what must take place 
It'd be good for you to note the the cross-reference because it brings you back to chapter 1, verse 19. There's only one other place in, in this book that this phrase shows up. It's when Jesus gave John the temporal outline of this book in chapter 1, verse 19. Jesus was going to show John what was, what is, and what must be after this. That's 119. And now Jesus is saying to John, here is what must take place after this. So in chapter 1, John wrote of what was. In chapters 2 and 3, we find John writing of what is, the time of the seven churches of Asia Minor. And now what we find recorded is, is what concerns the future. What must be is, is of necessity, and this will be after this. If we wonder what that necessity is, it is the establishment of God's kingdom over all. Spoken of by the prophet Daniel, and many times since then, and throughout scriptures. So what we have as we begin this chapter 4 is progress in the temporal outline from past to present, now to future, but we also have progress in what we'd call the structural outline. Not only has the time changed, but the topic has changed. There are four major movements in this drama of the book where Jesus is accomplishing the victory of God, and they're all set off by the same phrase, in the Spirit. It's not meant to be some strange thing, some uh, kind of uh, thing that we're supposed to mimic and be of control by the Spirit. This is a unique situation for John that does not happen for all of us. This was unique for him. You say it's unique because of what it did. It brought him to observe heaven. It's not something we all get to observe, but this is used in the book to show us that the drama is progressing, and Jesus is going to reveal to John a scene in heaven. It's future in reference to time, and it is new in reference to topic. So from the voice of Jesus that we hear in verse 1, we move to the appearance of the one who is seated on the throne. Look at verses 2 and 3. And behold, the throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper, carnelian, that's sardis or ruby. It's a red color. And around the throne was a rainbow, that they had had the appearance of an emerald. That's a green color. What we're trying to see is what what John is, is saying here, what he saw is just an amazing sight. He saw the glorious sovereign on his throne. And this is a brief description, but it's focused on the appearance of this one. Not on the appearance of his person, but of the light that was around him. These are glorious colors of red and green that dazzle with the beauty of God's glory. It's a light that encircles the throne. It's a brief description given the other descriptions we have of this very scene that we find in Scripture. Because this is not the first time we have descriptions of God on His throne. Probably you think very popularly of Isaiah who saw the Lord. But we need to think of several others. There's one that happened several hundred years before then. Exodus chapter 24 on Mount Sinai. Seventy Israelites beheld the Lord. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders. 
they ascended the mountain, and the Bible says that they beheld God, not that they beheld his person, but his glory, because no man can see God and live. That was back in 1440 B.C. Then we move on in advance in years to Isaiah, who saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all of his attendants. That happened in 739 B.C. Of course, Jesus tells us that on the occasion when Isaiah saw the Lord, he saw Jesus. He saw the Son of God. And then we move on to 593 B.C. with the prophet Ezekiel, who in chapter 1 of his book gives us the most extensive description of God in his glory and his attendance on his throne. A whole chapter given to this site. And finally, we come in 553 B.C. to the prophet Daniel, who saw the Ancient of Days on his fiery throne, and he describes his personal appearance and his attendance around the throne. It is these with Revelation 4 that are the Scripture's record of the Father on his throne. And it's the reality. It's the reality that's not seen. It's the reality that is, sadly, it is largely not accepted. But it is a reality that is plainly and repeatedly taught in Scripture. Just think through your Bibles. Think through the Psalms. All the way back in Psalm 2, you remember that it says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. Psalm 9, the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice. Psalm 11, the Lord is on his, in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Isaiah 66 Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Jesus said, Matthew 23, whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and him who sits upon it. So there are these references and many more that point to the reality that God is in heaven on his throne. It is a clear teaching of Scripture. It is the greatest and most significant reality that there is, and this is one that John had only read about until the day that Jesus said, Come up here. And he saw it with his eyes. You know, it's one thing to read something. It's completely another thing to see it for yourself. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, by God's grace, we will see it. It will be our first sight when we get there. We will see the Father on his throne. We should be impressed with the glorious beauty of this heavenly sight. But having said that, we don't need to just be concerned that it's just a beautiful thing, as if it's just a beautiful painting that we can observe and walk away from. That's not possible because the throne is extremely significant. You say, how? Well, the Psalms make it plain. The doctrine of the Psalms make the significance of God's throne plain. Psalm 103, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens. That's where it is. What does that mean? His kingdom rules over all. Psalm 47, God reigns over the nations. He sits on his holy throne. The significance of the throne is that a sovereign sits upon it. That is to teach us God the Father is the glorious sovereign who sits on the throne. That is the great reality. 
And we need to focus on that reality, and we find that in verses 4 through 7. God the Father is the universal sovereign. In these verses, again, we're going to see a lot of references to the throne, but we're going to see how things in heaven stand in relation to the throne because God the Father is at the center. The other thrones are around his throne. Look at verse 4. Around the throne, his throne, the throne of the Father, were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. Now, some people think that these elders were angels, but it's more likely that they were people, given how they are described. And given the fact that we've just read about the promises to the overcomers in chapters 2 and 3, we read about thrones that were promised in chapter 3, verse 21. We read about white garments in chapter 3, verse 5. We read about crowns in 2.10 and 3.11. It would seem that these are people. As for the number 24, we can only guess. Possibly the 24 represent God's people in the Old Testament and the New Testament because we have 12 tribes of Israel. We have the 12 apostles. We're not told, however, so we can't know for sure. But what we know for sure is their position around the throne of God. And it draws attention to the throne of God, because God the Father is at the center in heaven. He has the power. Look at verse 5. Lightning and thunder comes from his throne. It says, from the throne come flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Lightning and thunder are examples of power. And the fact that that comes from the Father's throne reveals his power. And These things have been seen and heard all the way back to Mount Sinai and signify the presence and power of God. So what we should think of when we think about God is not that he is some weak character who happens to have made it to a sovereign position. No, he is the Almighty. He has power. Verses 5 through 7, he is the focus. The attention in heaven is on him. Look at who is before him. Verse 5, in the middle of the verse, before the throne were burning seven torches of fire. What's that? Well, it explains for us exactly what it is. Which are the seven spirits of God? That's the Holy Spirit. And before the throne, there, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. What we see here is the Father's glorious presence, power, and position is illuminated and reflected. And when that happens to something, it magnifies it. It points attention to it. The Father's throne is illuminated by the light of the Spirit, and it is reflected in the sea. You've been to Washington, D.C. You've seen the great pond in front of the buildings. When you look at it, it just reflects the beautiful structures. And so it is that this great sea around the throne reflects, magnifies the throne. So what we find is that the makeup of heaven is trying to draw attention to the glorious sovereign of heaven. Look at verse 6 and 7. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And what we read here, we find that John sees what Ezekiel saw. These are amazing creatures. Some of God's greatest in his creation 
And we know that because of how they're described by a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. And most people agree that that stands for nobility, strength, intelligence, and swiftness. So this is extremely amazing. These are extremely powerful beings. But when we read through this, perhaps what catches our attention the most is their eyes. It says they're full of eyes in front and behind. Say, what do you do with your eyes? Will you give attention to the things you value? Because we look at things we want to see. And these four amazing living creatures are fixed on the one who is on the throne. They are giving undivided attention to God. And we ought to take note of that, that amazing creatures are choosing to do this. They look at the one seated on the throne. What else do they do? Well, that's exactly how the passage progresses. We need to take careful notice of what they do. Because not only is God the Father the glorious sovereign of heaven, but God the Father is worshipped. Heaven worships the one who is seated on the throne, verses 8 through 11. And some people lead in worship, and others follow. Those who lead are the four living creatures who worship the one seated on the throne. Look at verse uh, verse 8. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings and full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So what you see is God is being praised by the most powerful of creatures. He is praised for who He is. He is described as holy, which is to say there is nothing in the universe like Him. He is utterly unique. Always remember back to 1 Samuel 2.2 where Hannah prayed this, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. He's unique. And this verse parallels what we find all the way back in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, where he saw the Lord praised, holy, holy, holy. And that's what we sing. We affirm God's holiness. We sing, there is none beside thee. God is in a category all his own. He is also all-powerful, the Lord God Almighty. He can do all things. He does all He pleases, and there's nothing so powerful that can restrict Him in any way. He is the Almighty, and He is the Eternal One. He always existed, and He always will exist. He is not limited by time, as the rest of us are. Now, from there, we need to take a notice that there's a connection between verses 8 and verses 9 through 11. What the four living creatures do is related and connected to what the 24 elders do. Take careful note, verse 9. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives for and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. You see, some lead in worship and others follow in worship. These 24 elders worship the one who's seated there. They fall on their faces before God the Father. That is a physical demonstration of His superiority, their inferiority. I often wonder why that's not more prevalent in the worship of God. Beyond that, they cast their crowns before Him, demonstrating that the crowns that they won, because those are victor's crowns, the crowns that they won were won by the grace that He granted them. It was ultimately due to His grace and working in their life. 
and they sing his praise because he is worthy because of all of he, has, he has done. Look at verses 10 and 11. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. When it comes to the worship of God, it is for who he is, it is for what he has done. What has he done? Why is he worthy of the worship of people? Because he created all things. And he did so for his pleasure, according to his will. And he sustains all things. Why? According to his will. Because it pleases him. That is the reason why he deserves glory. He's the great creator. Now today we hear calls for change in perspective. People are protesting in the streets. They want other people to change their perspective about things. But there is a call that is far more important, and we find it in Revelation 4. It's a call to worship the glorious sovereign of the universe. You say, why, why is there this call to worship this glorious sovereign? Because at present, the creation doesn't respond in worship to the Creator. And Paul makes this just so plain in Romans chapter 1. Listen to what Paul said. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. As we look around, we could summarize it in this way. People are screaming and crying for people to worship their gods, the gods that they care about most, the stuff that they care about most. And so many of the conflicts in today come from the fact that people worship different gods, different created things, instead of the true God, who made everything. So why do we need to see this scene that Jesus revealed to John? Because we need to see the way that things ought to be. In heaven, all worship God the Father because He's the glorious sovereign. That's how it is in heaven. And may we pray, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Revelation 4 shows us what it is in heaven, what God's will is in heaven, that all worship the sovereign creator. That is the greatest reality that there is. And it needs to impact you and me today. Father, we realize that you in this passage are exalted. And we need grace to believe that. We need grace to believe that. We need grace to worship you. The psalmist said, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Father, that is a wonderful thing for the psalmist to say. That is a hard thing for us to say with honesty. Because we get dazzled by the simplest of things. We pour our means into 
some of the most pointless of things into the most temporal of items when you deserve our worship and honor and glory. Father, we pray that you would create in us a heart that truly believes this reality and worships you as you deserve. May you be gracious to us, show us any area in our life that we worship something besides you. May we repent of it, may we set it aside, and may we focus on you because that is what heaven focuses upon. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.